Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the JHU Press Journals Division. The latest issue of the journal, The CEA Critic, is a special issue titled Living the Teaching Life in a Time of COVID-19. With us today to talk about this timely and important issue is the journal's general editor, Dr. Jerry Craver. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Well, thank you, Mary Alice. I am really happy to talk about this issue. It, it's, it's a good one, and I'm really excited to get into it because it's obviously very relevant. <laughs> so I just wanted to ask, since some of our listeners might not be familiar with CEA or its journal, if you could just give us a little bit of basic information first, um, what the CEA is and uh, what the mission of the organization is. Sure. The CEA is the College English Association, and it was established around 1938, 39 by what I like to describe as a bunch of young Turks who felt that MLA wasn't necessarily meeting the needs of teacher scholars. MLA was dedicated to scholar teachers. And we really wanted to put the emphasis, or they back then wanted to put the emphasis on the teaching part of that designation. And that continues today. So we still emphasize the relationship between teaching and scholarship and focus a lot on how we teach the materials that are also the source of our scholarship and the diversity of that material. So that's the mission of the organization. And the focus of the journal for the past 80 years, I don't do math very well, is, and I've been a member of CEA for 30 years. I started as a graduate student, so I've watched it evolve. It is, it's really exciting to be able to go and see annually at our annual meeting, all of the same familiar faces, many of whom I went to graduate school with. So we're still members. That's what I love about it. It's very collegial and it emphasizes that at our annual conference, which is why not having the conference last year was so horrible to us because wait, that's where we reconnect. But anyway, the conference aligns with the mission of the journal, which aligns with the mission of the organization, which is a broad look at what we do as college English professors. And that's evolved to include more in composition and rhetoric, more in multimodality, LGBTQ issues, uh, more in film. So the, the journal and the organization have evolved as the profession has. Um, well, you brought up my next question, which was um, regarding your annual meeting. Um, so as you noted in, in the introduction for this issue, uh, typically the third issue every volume year of CEA Critic is proceedings from your annual meeting. And I dare say pretty much all academic conferences this year, uh, yours was canceled due to the pandemic. So my question to you is, what was the sort of timeline on that? And how did you pivot so quickly from, you know, a, a meeting being canceled to turning this into the, the issue becoming focused on the very reason why the meeting was canceled? Well, the first response was panic and then hysteria and then figuring out what I was going to do and how I was going to contact Chris, my JHUP contact, and say, oh my God, we have no issue. And then I just thought to myself, this is such a horrible time that we're living through. And it was fairly recent. It was March and we were all losing our conferences. We were all sad about it. And I just said, I wonder if I'm the only one whose world has been rocked. 
And I said, okay, let's see about everybody else. But I didn't want it to be an academic exercise. I didn't want it to be these analytical research papers. I want it to be people's gut responses to being in the middle of this moment. And so I realized I could send out a call for papers, short little papers, the way the proceedings usually is. They're not full length papers because they were conference presentations. And in the way that the proceedings tries to capture a picture of the conference, for the audience of readers. I wanted this issue to capture the experience of COVID for not necessarily members of our organization, because all the people I, who contributed weren't, but to people in our profession, these small moments that, that, that they sort of, they have to address in this immediate pandemic. Once it happened, I was like, great, this is a, this is a brilliant idea. And hopefully I'll get a couple of articles. And I truly was emailing everybody I know. Hey, you want to write an article? You want to write a reflection? You want to write a piece for this? One of the poems in it is from Kelly Norman Ellis, who was a colleague of mine. She was actually the maid of honor at my wedding. And she's the chair of the, the oh you know, right? And she's the chair of the English department at Chicago State. And on Facebook, she published, she, she didn't publish, she wrote a poem. And she put it on Facebook and I wrote her. I said, Kel, can I have this please for my issue? And the photo essay by Ken Prince in the issue, Ken Prince was my husband's best man at the same wedding. There were only four of us at the wedding. We took off and did it, you know, on a Saturday. But anyway, Ken was his best man and he's also a registrar and a photographer. And I'm like, Ken, you got any pictures? So I was tapping people I know and then all of a sudden, all these other people started submitting stuff too. So I, it was, you know, it was a wealth. I, I was overwhelmed. That is charming and delightful that it's such a family affair for you. Um, I guess, well, my question is, so you, you kind of started asking people, but then there was a, like a, a, a relatively formal call for papers. Um, and so once that came out, what was the response? I think you were kind of surprised at, at the response. I was stunned by it. I would I'd, I'd go on, I get emails, I'd find things in our, we have a Gmail account and all of a sudden I go on and there'd be 10 emails from people either asking if their idea was, was good or just submitting things. And then I realized they were coming from everywhere. They were coming from around the world and they were, everybody wanted to tell the story of their experience and what they were going through. And I think because it was so new then, we were, it, it was, Writing about it didn't feel like an ordeal. It felt almost it felt almost exciting in these early days. I think now I might get a, a more miserable, they're tired of it kind of response. But I posted it in all of the regular call for paper sites and just started getting people submitting their stories uh, uh, of all kinds. I got creative works. I got I got analytical essays. People who who were talking about an Ian e. Forster story and how it fits in with this. People talking about a play that they saw, but others talking about how they had to shift their teaching or what it revealed to them about the lives of their students. And so the it was so hard to choose because I, was, I wanted to hit all of these sort of subtopics, but I felt like I could have done you know, three issues. And just interestingly, we're at the proof stage now. And when I realized how big the manuscript was, I wrote to Chris and I said, I think it's too long. I think it might be longer than usual. They're usually 100 pages and this one's 144. And he said, all of the upper people were fine with it and allowed us to have this really exceptionally large. So I was really even happier then. You guys have always been great to me, so. Oh, well, 
I will. I won't take credit, but thank you. <laughs> I mean, it's true though. I mean, I think everybody. It's just another example of everybody um, making quick and important changes to how you do your job. You know, we suddenly have a journal that's twice as big. We got to make a journal that's twice as big. Yeah, exactly. And you touched on you touched on this sort of the, the the fact that there were so many responses from so many different countries. Is that normal for a CEA critic? Do you are you mostly you know student educators in the states that are submitting? This was sort of a, a, a abnormality in terms of the global reach? Well, we often get global submissions, something that we like, we like to cultivate. One of our long-term members is actually from um, Belarus. She comes to all of our conferences and she's published in the journal. And we try to cultivate, um, we try to be a place for international scholars to feel like they have a home here. And, um, and an interesting story is, I was thinking about this when we were talking or when you were asking me in some questions about language, about things that were challenging and working with second language learners here or second language speakers, I'm sorry, English is not their first language. And we made this conscious decision not to over edit because we wanted the natural voice of people who were not native speakers to come through. But one of them wrote to us and said, given your willingness to help me with my language, I now feel empowered to um, submit my work to other English language journals. And that's a place we want to be for scholars because so many of the sco international scholars who write, who submit to us are writing about American literature or British literature, or often they're writing about literature of their own countries that we don't know. So we have always been a welcoming place for international scholars. But in this one, we've got India, Hong Kong, France, Switzerland, there's a couple of um, China. So we've got, and then across the United States from Texas to Georgia to Pennsylvania. So we've got this real diversity and I tried to touch on that. So I had to reject some essays because it's like, I already have one from China and I don't wanna to do too many. So the short answer is yes, we've always been open to those kinds of writer, to writers internationally, but never the amount that we got. Wow. The first thing that I read from this issue that just struck me, which was one of those moments of, of, well, obviously, but it really resonated, was in your introduction, you said something to the effect of this is really, for generations, the first global event that we will globally have a memory of and globally have stories for. And I, as much as, you know, you get sort of depressed thinking about that, it's everywhere and we're all dealing with this, but then it's sort of, there's a strange sort of hopefulness to that. Like we, we're all going to be telling these stories, you know, for generations. I told my son just like, a couple of days ago, your grandchildren are going to be like, Grandpa, what was COVID like? <laughs> this is so true. I say to my, you know, I'm, and you, you, in one of your questions, you were talking about now, how it's been year, months after, months after this all started. That's my next, my next question, actually. <laughs> yeah. Good. This is perfect because I see it in my, my students are feeling the effects. Um, I teach English courses and I do pre-service teachers, so I've got two different types of students, and. They write to me and say, you know, Jer, um, I'm, I'm beside myself. I'm in a panic. Uh, I don't know what to do. I can't read. I can't sit still. There, there's a sadness that's coming over them and not because they can't be with their friends, just overall sadness. And I said in class just yesterday, hand to God, I teach Tuesday, Thursday. I said to them yesterday, guys, wherever you go in the world, People will be talking, they'll say, do you remember 20? You could be in Antarctica because they can't come back. They're all the, the scientists are trapped down there because of COVID. You could go to Africa, wherever you go, 
in your life, people will say, yeah, 2020, where were you? Tell me one other event, right? World War II didn't touch the world the way this was. My husband was saying Y2K. I'm like, I don't think places that didn't have the internet were really worried about the crash. So it really is this wonderful moment of unity that hopefully will give them some solace. But I do see this, this, this sadness. And a lot of the people who wrote articles we're seeing that even early on, that they're in some of the things we say that their students were just at sixes and sevens, didn't know how to make sense of what was going on and, and fumbling through. And so to me, I really think finding something positive in this. And for me, it was that point that I'm making with students about it being everywhere is exactly what this issue is trying to illustrate, that wherever you are in the four corners of the world, somebody is so it's the, the faculty at a university is dealing with the same things you are regardless of whether it's a two-year college or a four-year college or a university in china or some fancy university in switzerland we're all just wrestling with the same things mm-hmm. yeah and and beyond beyond academia too you know and it's um i think it's also helped everybody realize how you know, all the, all the, and this isn't one of my pre-written questions, but the, the sort of disparate parts of your life, everybody realizes that we've all gotten like nine different bubbles. You know, it's like, you're a parent, you're an educator, you're, you're teaching kids, you've got your own kids, or I'm, you know, I'm, t- I'm caring for my mother. Everyone suddenly, the rest of their life has sort of become a little more apparent. And I think it's hopefully, at least for me, I feel like it's giving everyone a little bit more empathy for what everyone deals with. Well, as I said, I, I work with pre-service teachers and they're like celebrating because, you know, my argument to them was when schools open up full time, you should all go on strike because no one's going to want their kids back again. So you want more money, you want smaller classes, you want more support staff, go on strike because no one, the parents are going to be like, no, don't send them back to me. And also beginning to understand job entails. And I think even for those of us who are in a bubble of a university where everything is sort of hunky-dory. My university is dealing with real financial issues. But even at every university, the financial issues are one thing. The how do I educate and care for my students is another. And I think what this issue reveals is what the mission is of the CEA as an organization. And that is to think about what we do as teachers and think about how we care for our students. That we are the caretakers of their social and emotional well-being. And all of these articles, or at least many of them, are really about how do we care for our students. And I loved that feeling of, of commitment to their well-being and their frustration. So one article is about uh, setting up a center to help students during this time, like on the fly, all of a sudden they create this. Another one of the writers talks about how it's revealing the economic disparities and cultural disparities among his students um, in India who don't have access to technology. So that we become, our, our role as the caretakers of these humans in our classrooms, I think becomes something that is more central and we all are backburnering our academic lives and our, oh, we've got to publish these articles and stuff. When we begin to think, well, what we really do is work with human beings that we have to help support in these really challenging times while we do those nine, 10 things that you were talking about. You just reminded me, you reminded me of one of my favorite quotes is, um, 
and I don't know who said it, so I'm going to mangle it, but something to the effect of that the word crisis, the, like the Latin root of that or whatever Greek, whatever the is, is to sift, to sift out all the bad stuff. And then you're left with just what's, what's the important stuff. Um, and so I've, that's another one I've been saying to myself, it's like, it's a crisis, but we're just, we're getting all the, the nonsense out of the way to get to the root and the core of your mission, which is exactly what you just said, which is great. It's what I say to my students all the time when, you know, we're opening a Pandora's box and I'm like, yeah, no one really reads the rest of that, right? They don't pay attention to what was at the bottom, at the little bottom, a tiny little bit of hope was still at the bottom of Pandora's box. So in the Pandora's box of all this horrible stuff that's happening to us, let's try to focus on those little hopeful moments. Exactly. And, and that's a great segue because my next question was about one of my favorite um, pieces in the issue, which was um, the comic that your student, Danny Butcher, put together. Um, so my first question is, has there ever been a comic in the CEA Critic? Is this a, this is a new a new medium for you guys? It is. It's brand spanking new. And it's funny, I teach, I, she was in my class on global graphic novels, and I am not like a graphic novel person, but um, I started paying attention to graphic novels because I do prepare teachers and Persepolis and Mouse and all of these graphic novels were making their way into the classroom. And then somebody said, well, why don't you teach a class on it? So that's what I do. I teach a class on graphic novels from the Ivory Coast and from Mexico and blah, blah, blah. And, um, and so I'm not really a, an expert in comics theory. We read Scott McCloud, who does comics theory. Um, and I usually, they are far more adept at this than I am. And she just wrote to me, um, she's gonna be a future English teacher, so she's in our program. And she wrote to me and said, I made this comic. And I was, it was about something not having to do with COVID. And I thought it was great. And I said, oh my God, this is like raw. It's a very raw kind of comic, but she, and I, I said, but I thought it was amazing. So when this issue came about, I said, would you want to, their final project could be a, making a comic. And I said, would you want to, and we had gone online, so I'm sorry. We, that, this was the class that I was teaching and then we shifted online. And so she sent it to me and said, look at this, what do you think about it? And, and, that, and that's when I said, yes, I want you to make one for my issue. And so she came up with the comic that's in there that really gives you a sense of the student's eye view, both the early, the, the newness of it, when she's got the screen with all the faces, you know, the, the sort of synchronous class going on. And now when I see her, you know, she's feeling the effects of it too. She's beginning to feel a little stressed and a little anxious about, you know, what it's gonna be like being an observer in a classroom when it's online as a pre-service teacher. But, um, but I really felt it was important to have a student voice in there to see what it was like from the other side. We often publish the work of graduate students because we like to be congenial. I was, a, as I said, I've been a member for 30 years. I started as a graduate student. I was brought there by John Shawcross, who was one of a former president of the organization. And so he brought his graduate students there. Um, my husband, who is the managing editor, I think of the critic and teaches at CU Boulder, He's he was Dr. Shawcross's student as well, so there's like a there's a, a connection with bringing new young new young blood to it. I bring my graduate students there, and so I really thought that having a student's voice in this um, and a new mode, speaking in the mode that is comfortable to this generation, the comic, I just thought was it, it was a natural to me. I was so excited that she wanted to do it. It's great. And it really, I mean, that and the photo essay, I mean, visually, it's such an interesting uh, issue also. Yeah, it's not just this tome of essay, you know, even if it was, I just, there's something, there's something very, um, 
organic feeling about it. You know, it really feels real and genuine and not just like you said in the beginning, not just like academic, we're gonna discuss this analytically kind of tone. Um, there's a very human feel to the whole issue. Capture, that's what the organization is. If somebody wants to know what the organization is in a nutshell, this issue does it because there are a couple of like more intellectual, um, my, my actually one of my colleagues is in it, Kenneth Chan, and he is a, um, a film professor. And he writes about being Asian in a time when we have the China virus. What is it like, you know, this idea of this connection. So there are some that are a little bit, it's the conference in a nutshell, because it's some serious and some analytical, and then some very personal, and then some creative, and then some some multimodal. And, um, and in fact, one or two of the essays that I got were on the occasion, on the occasion of COVID, I thought this, and I said, eh, eh. You thought this, let's turn that into an article for the next issue that I'm going to need, um, because it was just on the occasion of COVID, where I, I wanted this to be about the COVID experience, not, oh, I was new on this play, COVID gave me the time. Uh -uh, that's not a COVID issue. That's not a COVID That's not a response, yeah. Exactly, and I wanted it to be, there were great essays, so I'm going to use them elsewhere, but I really wanted this to be, this is what COVID did to my world. Yeah, and I think it's so important. I mean, despite the fact that we're living in the age that we're living in and everyone can post on social media and, and blog and, and all that, to have a real tangible record is so important. Um, you know what I mean? Because despite the fact that we're, we are content dizzy, journals, specific, I mean, scholarly journals really are a, kind of a much more permanent record than just, you know, a year's worth of Facebook posts. So I think there, there's an importance to that, um, which, which this, which journals does um, more so than other medium. And it's so much faster than books. <laughs> so it, 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 you able to respond to this so quickly, it's just really, it's a special thing, I think. Yeah, I'm really, you know, it's funny, the last big issue we did was the anniversary issue, our 80th anniversary issue. And I did that by that was a double issue. And I thought at that point that this was something that captured the story of the organization. And it did, but it was a lot of, you know, and it was a lot of interesting things and little small pieces. And it, it, so it was a, it was the, it was the trajectory of the organization as it evolved or the journal as it evolved over 80 years. But this one really captures the spirit of the, um, it's replacing the conference and it captures the spirit of the conference in a way I really wanted to. And I don't know if they've made it public yet but we are also not gonna meet next year. They've just canceled the 2021 conference. I know, don't tell me, I gotta figure out something fast. And we're all, I mean, I'm heartbroken by it. In fact, I have to go in and change my, edit out my introduction because the last line is, I can't wait to see everybody. And so um, I, I, think it, I, I think the people, the organization knows now, but, um, but yeah, that one damn broke my heart. It's like, wait a minute, the, as I said, it, that that conference is so essential to the character of who we are. And um, and so at least maybe in 2022, we'll be maskless and consider smiling faces. Yeah, now I'm trying to figure out, great, what am I going to, I have, at least I have a year to come up with the next proceedings. Not quite, not quite as the emergency situation. COVID like too, that. maybe, you know, COVID too. Bite your tongue. <laughs> 
the last thing I wanted to ask you were a couple of questions. I'm going to sort of bounce your own questions back on yourself because I was I was also quite taken with the, the questions that you asked in your call for papers, which were really just sort of open-ended, almost personal questions, like tell me about your experience. So I wanted to find out your answers to those. Um, the first of which was, and this is a big one, so you can, you can answer it as big or small as you want, which is how has everything that's going on affected um, your scholarly endeavors as a teacher, as a professor for better and or for worse? Well, in terms of scholarship, I'm really lucky. I am a, um, I'm on the back end of my career. I'm just trying to figure out, I, I'm ready to retire. I just have to figure out what I'm going to do until I find something to do in retirement. I'm not retiring because I'll just sit around the house and watch hours of Dr. Pimple Popper and and eat. So I've decided that, and you feel free to leave that in. I do, I own my watching Dr. Pimple Popper. Anyway, um, so I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? So I have four articles that I've just simply backburnered, although one is a project that I'm really excited about. But I just said, I don't need them. I'm not like, but I do feel for my junior faculty colleagues who still feel the pressure of being an academic and having to perform. Our university has, um, has paused the tenure clock, which I think is helpful. And I think a lot of universities have, but even when you pause it, all you're thinking about is, oh my God, what am I, I I'm gonna have even double to do next time. So in that sense, it doesn't affect me. I, um, I'm teaching face-to-face, -face, as I said, because I can't imagine doing synchronous teaching. And I'm, it's funny, my husband and I are both at retirement age. And we've both said, we can't let this be the year we retire. We can't end in masks, not being able to deal with our students. And um, and next semester, I'm still teaching face-to-face. -face. And in fact, I'm gonna teach a class of 35 in a room that holds 200 because I need it for the spacing. And it's a class that I love. It's the class I look forward to teaching every year. And I'm really anxious about it and I'm filling it with all my own students so I can hope that they'll talk more. But as a teacher, it's just not, what I want. And you know, it's something that I thought about. My my administrators are keep saying, oh, I keep hearing from the students that they like this hybrid model or they're really doing well in the synchronous. And I said it to my class yesterday, again, because I taught yesterday. And you can excuse my language. Every single one of them said that's bullshit. I call bullshit on that. They don't know anybody who's loving this, but administrators are trying to put on a happy face. And I said to my students, you don't have to put on a happy face. No one's happy. Let's just understand. None of us are happy. That doesn't mean we curl up into a corner and die. It just means that we acknowledge that being unhappy with how things are going is a-okay. That's a normal state to be unhappy with this, but don't pretend, don't make anybody force you to put on this happy face. And I see that a lot in the profession that people are put on your happy face. Don't look sad. And I'm, so I'm, I'm frustrated with the profession for forcing that on some faculty um, and I'm and forcing it on students. But for me, that's the thing that bothers me most because at this stage in my career, I'm so centered on their lives and their world and making it easy for them that my stuff is, I, I, I'm 62 years old, I can deal with it. I'm not 19 where this is the biggest trauma in my life, you know, and I can say to them, trust me, if this is the biggest trauma, you're going to have a very happy life because this is not that traumatic, but you can't tell that to a 19 year old. They, they, okay, boomer me then. So I go, okay, boomer. I'm like, man, but no. So yeah, so I, I feel the pain of a lot of the, the essays. I, I, in fact, I might've chosen them because I, I had an empathetic response to the people writing it. 
I, well, I think, and yeah, I think that's, that's true. And that's, again, another reason why it's so important. I think when, you know, we, to, to just, just hearing everybody else is going through the same thing is, is so great. And like I said, before we started recording, I love hearing goof ups on the radio when the reporter's kid is screaming in the background. I'm just like, thank you. This, I'm not the only one with the screaming child in the background. It just makes you feel like just a little bit more connected. <laughs> Yep. I, when I when my colleagues and I sit down for a socially distanced cocktail, that's what we talk about. We talk about, oh my God, did you see this? Oh my God, the student was brushing his teeth during my Zoom class. You know, it's just, my husband teaches a course on skiing and snowboarding, and some kid was on a ski lift at Snowmass, zooming into class. <laughs> like, okay, that's know. that's impressive. That's impressive. Right. I had a meeting. I had a meeting where somebody was at the barber shop in on the meeting once, which I thought was that was a good that was a good like, you know, um, just using your time multitasking. smartly. <laughs> multitasking. That was the word I was looking for. Thank you. Um, I guess. And then my last question, which is, again, is one of one of the ones you asked in your call for papers, which is um, kind of on a positive note. What are you doing to stay sane? What what keeps you, you know, we're not lying and saying that we're happy. But what what's what's one thing that's that's keeping you afloat these days? You know, I, 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 I'm in a bunch of organizations that meet and we have these Zoom meetings and the first one they do is they go around and they say, so tell us how you're doing. And my standard line is I haven't killed my husband or eaten my dog. And that's how I know I'm surviving. <laughs> um, you know, Colorado, up until now with the, with the fires, which we've been dealing with now, and they are, in, they are actually in the area where I live, we've had beautiful weather and we can be outside. And so I just spend a lot of time outside hiking and running and and being outdoors, walking with my dog. I have to turn in my ballot today because I want my little sticker. So I'm on my way to turn in my ballot and walk to the ballot box, stuff like that, just to be there. I tend to, you know, I don't have kids, so I don't deal with that. Um, I'm at school two days a week, um, but I like everybody else. I was gonna bake bread. I was gonna do yoga every day. I was gonna play the piano. I, I had all these plans. I did none of them. I did none of them. I watch TV, I eat, I, you know, I mean, I just, and my life is exactly the same, except I don't get to go out as much as I would like. The, the, I, think the, I think trying to be as ordinary as possible in extraordinary times is a way of my keeping sane. And, um, and I think a lot of, right? And so like, like the articles, these are all teachers who are trying to do what they do as teachers. They're trying to keep being teachers in the face of an enormous challenge of the pandemic, but they're trying to keep things as ordinary as possible for their students. And I think that that's what we do. Be ordinary in extraordinary times. That is an excellent note to end on. Thank you so much, Daria. I appreciate your time. Oh, Mary Alice, it was wonderful. I love talking about my CEA critic. It's my baby. I uh, I love it. I think it's a, and I welcome people out there to send submissions. Excellent. I will, I will include all of that linkage when we post this. This podcast is a production of Johns Hopkins University Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals.